Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Lucy. Hi, everybody. I cannot tell you um, how joyful it is for me to look out here, and there's so many people here that I really truly care about. I actually was about to say love, but then I thought, if I was listening to this, I'd think, oh, she's so full of it. Um, but there's a lot of people here I truly, truly care about. Um, I first took my 30-day chip here. This is my home meeting. I have 10 and I was going to say 10 and a half. I have 10 years and three quarters of, of abstinence, um, maybe more like seven eighths, I'm not sure. Um, so I just want to say congratulations uh, to the chip takers. Uh, welcome to the newcomers. We're so happy to have you here. It's so great to have you here. Um, I've seen some of you for years. It's really wonderful that, that you're here now. And uh, congratulations to the to the birthday people as well. Uh, it's a really big deal. Okay, so this is the story. Um, I grew up with perfect parents. I had the parents that everybody wanted. Uh, they were really beautiful. My mom is, is super pretty. She's got beautiful blue eyes. She, she sort of had this weight problem. She's, she's kind of one of us, but um, she's fun. She's funny. Um, my dad is 6'4 and stunning. Uh, they're both ridiculously smart. Uh, they went to Ivy League schools. They were really good at sports. We were the kind of family that played tennis and, you know, skied and did all that, and um, everything was, was perfect. And uh, I was the oldest child. I still am. And um, my father decided uh, when I was six that he would kind of jettison his, I don't know what to call it, kind of upscale conservative job, and he would take his family to Southeast Asia. And we lived about three blocks away from my grandmother, who I'm named after. Or did I say my name? I hope I did. I'm Lucy B, by the way. Um, so anyway, so um, the other Lucy B lived up the street. And, um, and I was very close to my grandmothers. I absolutely adored them. Um, one is one of us. She's so fabulous. She used to steal cookies from us and stick them down her bra. She was really great. Um, and, then, and then we would say, gosh, we're so hungry. Do you have anything to eat? She'd be like, oh, yeah, here. There'd be like boxes of things coming out. She was, she was wonderful. Anyway, so, um, so we went to a third world country in the 1960s. And uh, it was dangerous. I was the only child, I don't know how to put it politically correctly, I was the only white kid in my class. I was the only white kid in my grade. Um, and so I was um, really out of place, you know, like really, really lonely and really out of place. My brother had a friend that lived around the block, and I had nobody. But I had books. Um, I learned to read super, super young. And I could start fantasizing about food. And because we were in a British Commonwealth country, a lot of the books that we had were these penguin paperbacks that had, like, 
intimate, gory stories of high tea. And I, at the age of six, I was like, oh, my God. And it was this. There's a word you say. It's not, we say scone, but it's like spoon or something. Anyway, they're like scones and clotted something and tea and cake. And I don't know how those people eat all that stuff. And it was, went on forever. And I remember I was supposed to have uh, my first communion because we were raised Catholic. And, uh, and you're not, in those days, you're supposed to not have any food three hours before. And I started eating because I was reading this book and I started getting hungry. I was like, oh, my God, they're having high tea. And so I started eating. And my mom didn't know I wasn't supposed to eat. So I think I broke some sort of rule um, before I had my first communion. So that's kind of how I started out. And I was incredibly lonely. Um, my, I, it's hard to describe what my parents did. They kind of did nothing, actually. They were super involved with each other, and it was kind of like, well, you have all this stuff, and you've got all this money, and even though at that time we were in Southeast Asia, we had no money, but, we, you know, you've got all this stuff, and you've got all this money, so go off and play. And they would just kind of leave us. So I was left in rooms alone in India, in Afghanistan, um, I was left in, like, the Salvation Army. I, I mean, weird stuff. I lost a third of my body weight in Nepal with dysentery. Uh, I had rheumatic fever. My mother didn't believe me, so I had to, you know, kind of bribe her into taking me to the doctor. So, so what I learned was this. Nobody's coming. I'm alone. Uh, my parents, for whatever reason, don't care. I have to be self-reliant, and if there's any soothing going to go on, it's going to have to come from me. So I would stay up really late at night, and, and it's a habit that's continued until very recently to say it's actually just starting to go away at the age of 63. But it's, so I would stay up really late at night to kind of soothe myself. And I couldn't stay in my bedroom because my bedroom would be regularly robbed. And so I, I moved in with my brother, and they thought that the reason I didn't wake up when I was robbed is because I was drugged, because they would take bamboo canes and, like, blow drugs in through the window. And... I mean, it was pretty exotic. Like, I didn't have, I had a squat toilet. <laughs> to this day, I'm like, hey, a squat toilet, great. But I had a squat toilet, and, um, and that's just the way it was. But I had these little cookbooks, and I could read the little cookbooks, and so I just sort of lived in my brain, you know. And, and then we got back to the United States, and I didn't belong to the United States. By that time, I was an Asian child. I didn't know... I, you know, I hadn't had TV in three years, so I didn't know how to talk about the TV shows, but man, I could eat. I could definitely eat. And my mom was a good cook, and so I learned to be a good cook, and also I was so bored in South... I was just so bored. I learned to cook, so I'd make my dad cookies. I was constantly trying to kind of make my dad happy because he was kind of a workaholic. And my husband still says to me, why are you doing this for your father? I'm like, okay, you're right. So anyway, I would make my dad like these cookies from this Betty Crocker cookbook, and and, and I got a lot of attention for being a really good cook. So I would do all that. And then I discovered around 10 that you weren't supposed to be overweight. I also dressed wrong. Like, I remember my girlfriend Karen saying to me, you wear your shorts too long. Because I was wearing, like, these long plaid Bermuda shorts down to your knees that are now kind of hip, but in those days, like, were not. Like, anyway, so she was like, you wear your shorts too long, and you don't look right, and, you know, you just don't look good. So I really wanted to fit in. And 
So that's when I started my eating, and there was all these strange rituals around food. Like, remember when I was 10, and, and our particular neighborhood was super big at Halloween. We had one of those great Halloween neighborhoods, and I would organize the candy. I didn't know that other people didn't do this. I would organize these candy in little patterns, like make flowers, and and, and then when we were, on, when we were coming back um, from Southeast Asia, we would have picnics, and I would put all the food like in this little stream kind of in a row and to this day I had all these little rituals that I kind of made with the food where I would sort of eat them in order and make them all pretty and and that kind of made me feel safe and and after school there was this corner market back in the old you know old days they had these little teeny corner markets like baby 7-elevens and I had like a quarter that means I could get like five different things and I would organize the candy and and um, so I had all these strange things that, that occurred around food. And I don't think I was really overweight. I mean, for one thing, when I was growing up in Southeast Asia, I was so sick all the time. I mean, I had worms. I had all this crazy stuff happen to me. So not a good image, I know, but I had them. Anyway, so, um, so I never had to worry about the weight. Now, starting about 10, started the chronic diet. I do not remember being off a diet between the – I came in – uh, probably in my early 50s, and I don't remember being off a diet for 40 years. I don't, I don't, it was, if I was off a diet, it, it was just a momentary blip. I was never off a diet. So then I started, you know, trying to be attractive to boys. In the meantime, my dad was moving around, so ultimately I went to 14 different schools in my childhood. So there was constantly trying to fit in, trying to, you know, find a cool group, trying to do this and that. So, um, and I would do strange things, you know, like I wear my friend's bathrobes to cover my butt, or I would wear jeans when I went swimming, or I would do all this strange stuff, as if somebody's not going to notice you have jeans on when you go swimming. But um, And then also became, I became a very serious ballet dancer, like like really serious. And so, of course, they were on me constantly to lose weight. And I, at this height, 5'7", I got down to 125, and it wasn't enough. And I saw in the mirror, and I'm like, oh, my God, I still have hips. Like, I thought I'd be like my best friend Janet in class who was built like a boy. I was like, I still have hips. This is, this is not working. And I sort of range between um, 125 and 165, so I go up and down 40 pounds in this um, in my disease. Um, right now, I think I'm kind of in the middle, but the real news is right now, I am totally okay with where I am. I don't aspire to lose more weight. I don't really care. If I do, that's great. If I gain weight, wouldn't be so happy, but um, I am okay the where I, where I am. Um, and I started to get this idea that I could only be okay if I was thin. I could only be okay if I was thin. I would only be acceptable as a ballet dancer. I would only be acceptable as a girlfriend. I would only be acceptable as a daughter if I was thin. And my mom would say stuff to me like, well, the reason you're falling down so much is you're overweight. And so I would, I would be like, oh, okay. And my brother and my sister were average weight. They were thin. And I was actually really athletic. And I can't even, I don't even know if I was overweight or not. I don't have any idea. I look at pictures. Every time I looked at pictures, all I could think of is everybody in the family and all my cousins look thin and I don't. That's all I could think of. So it was constantly this feeling of what's wrong with me, what's wrong with me, and I can fix what's wrong with me by being thinner and not eating. So at the age of 17, I go on this radical diet. My, I get my first job at Kentucky Fried Chicken. I said I'm eating nothing at Kentucky Fried Chicken ever, and I restrict the whole summer. 
And it's the summer where they started importing Perrier. So I drank Perrier and smoked cigarettes, and that was my diet because I thought it was super healthy. So I'm drinking Perrier, I'm smoking cigarettes, and um, I lose a bunch of weight by not eating. And then I, I decide I'm going to start binging because by that time I've been restricting three months. And so I start trying to make myself purge, but that doesn't work. So this goes on and on and on. And I joined a gym at the time, and um, they really have gyms back in the day then. They really didn't have them. What they had are these belts. Okay, and you stand and they have these belts, and these belts, it's, it's really like a bad cartoon, like jiggle your fat. And you just stand there with this belt, and it like moves your fat around like, like this. And that was supposed to do, I don't know, something. And <laughs> But I had lost all this weight that summer because I was restricting, and so they, the gym used to say, the gym, I say that in quotation marks, used to say, see, look at Lucy, look how much weight she's lost, you know, by these all these jiggle machines, you know, where you put one thigh in. So, uh, and I, you know, I went on all these diets, like this diet where you eat a grapefruit before, and then this, and then you're, the grapefruit's supposed to, like, break down all your food, and then there's this one diet where you're supposed to have only fruit one day, and then there's a diet where you can eat, you restrict the whole week, but then you eat whatever you want. But my idea of eating whatever I want is very different than other people's. Like, my idea of eating whatever I want is literally to go through the bakery case. People say, oh, yeah, let yourself splurge. Have a piece of cake. I would have seven. And and somebody finally said to me, I don't think that they mean have, like, a slice of every cake. But I was like, well, what's the point then? Then that's just, that's just normal eating. You know, but the main thing was is the obsession. And when I first got in this program, my sponsor said to me, you have three meals a day and life in between. And I completely ignored it because I had no idea what life in between meant. I was like, what is she talking about? You have your breakfast, you plan your lunch, you wait for your lunch, you wait for your lunch, you have your lunch, you plan your dinner, you wait for your dinner, you wait for your dinner, you have your dinner in between, maybe you go to Starbucks, you get some samples, and you wait for your dinner. I, I, so she said, you know, three meals a day and life in between. I was like, okay, whatever. I just ignored that one. Um, so, and a lot of it was, can I be successful as a performer by being really thin? Oh, I'm not successful. That means I'm not thin. Oh, so-and-so doesn't like me, this hot new hot guy. That means I'm not thin. Everything meant I w- I'm not a good person. That means I'm not thin. Everything meant I'm not thin. I'm not thin. I'm not thin. And I'm not thin equals there's something horribly wrong with me. And in the meantime, my parents were completely not equipped um, to deal with this. As I said before, they were stunningly beautiful and really smart and athletic. So they were like, hey, you know, we've done everything we can. We have good genes. You're on your own. You know, they, they, there was no oh, we love you, or you're fine the way you are, or don't worry, you can get a B. There was like, no, that that was not happening. And I solved this problem by failing school, getting kicked out, smoking dope. I mean, you know, I did everything I could to attract attention, and then I developed tremendous self-reliance and tremendous defiance. And uh, there are people out here who have read the big book, and if you read the big book, it talks about how we need to rely on each other, we need to rely on a higher power, and how defiance is really one of the really major problems, that, you know, in the, in this program. Um, so how I came into program is this, this went on, you know, for years. I would go up. I would go down. I would weigh myself obsessively. I mean, five, six, seven times a day. I would carry a scale with me. So if I went on vacation, I would pack a scale so that I could, you know, weigh myself however much I needed to weigh. Um, so I went to a, see a therapist who was a food therapist, and she was a long-term member of Overeaters Anonymous, and she said you should go to an OA meeting. And I had been, I had been um, 
to a relationship program to correct. I had a small program, stock, you know, small issue stalking men back in the day when you actually had to drive, as my sponsor said. So I had, I said that to somebody yesterday. I said, where do you live? She said, Sunset Park. I'm like, ah, oh, I know it so well. Yes, because I was hiding under cars uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning. I, like, knew every street. You know, I knew where the cars were parked. The interesting thing about stalking men is you never see what you want to see. Uh, but anyway, so I couldn't... They didn't have Facebook back in the day, so, but it's not a bad way to get to know L.A. But I, I, they didn't have Facebook back in the day, so I was driving around. But anyway, so I knew the 12-step programs worked, but I just didn't want to go into one. So I came in, like I tried it kind of in 1986. I left. I didn't like it. You know, I thought everybody looked weird. I also thought nobody had a job. I mean, because obviously, if you had a job, you wouldn't be here. Um, I didn't like the way anybody looked. Uh, there's a lot of other things I didn't like. I didn't think anybody else was like me. Um, I thought I was better educated. I thought I had more money. I mean, just put anything in the blank. Just I thought I was more, I, I don't know what I thought. I didn't want to be here, so I wasn't here. So I came back in in 2006 after a particularly bad binge, and I was sitting on the beach. It was one of these beautiful Southern California days, and all I could think of is I'm totally alone. I can't tell my sister she's normal. I have nobody to tell. I don't know what to say. I, I'm alone. I can't tell my husband, hey, guess what? When you were asleep, I went through the pantry. And I, I actually wouldn't plan out my binges. I would plan out my food. I'm going to go to this restaurant, this restaurant. But the binges, I would always think, well, I'm just going to have one cookie, one chip, one. And then it would evolve into this mass kind of improvisation of making sour cream dip at 3 a.m. and defrosting things and staying up till 3 o'clock in the morning, watching television where only the music was on, okay? So that's, that's it's a black screen, and I'm listening to music, eating. Um, then I would start drinking if I got bored, add that one in. and um, so, this, so I started going to OA. I would come late. I would leave early. I got a, got a sponsor. Sponsor said, you know, go to two meetings a week, work the steps. I said, okay, it sounds easy to me. So then I went to Paris, and, you know, I didn't think about what meetings I was going to. I just was like, oh, I'm going to go to Paris, and I, I planned my first meal, which involved oysters. I remember that. And, um, but, of course, after my first meal, it wasn't enough. So I came back to the hotel. I opened up the little mini refrigerator, and I got, oh, cheese biscuits. And I started eating cheese biscuits, and I think I started drinking champagne. But I had enough program in me at that point that I woke up in the morning, and I was humiliated and devastated and I got down on my knees and I said the third step to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him and I felt this thing lift off of me I felt like what would happen if I could turn my will and my lives over what would happen if I had a moment of respite from hating myself loathing myself hating you because you're thinner um, telling other people why you were a bad person because you're thinner. Um, telling other people why I was a better person than they thought I was, even though I wasn't thin. Trying to prove I was a better person. Trying to prove, you know, whatever I was trying to prove. What would happen if all of that went away? And um, I got back to California. Uh, my dog had all these red spots on her. The vet said this is a very serious issue. Um, I called my sponsor. She's like, well, I haven't heard from you in three weeks, so, you know, I've, I've moved on. And I was devastated. My dog was dying. I, I didn't know what to do. And I called a friend of mine in AA, and he called another friend of his, and they said, we found somebody who we think can help you, um, and she's in OA. 
and her name is Leslie, and I thought, oh no, oh no, it's that, it's that girl that sits in the front row. But at this point, I, I, at this point, you know, if they had said call Genghis Khan and his brother Attila the Hun, I would have said, totally fine, no problem. And so I called her, and unbelievably enough, she answered the phone. She's never answered since, I don't think. It was 5 o'clock on a Wednesday. It was amazing. She answered the phone, and she was like, do you do this? Do you do that? I'm like, no. She said, where do you sit? I sat in the back effing row, okay? I sat in the back row so I could get in and leave early. She said, why don't you write about what surrender means to you and come to light a candle and, and read it to me? And I was so nervous. I was shaking. So I came. I had my little piece of paper. I read about what surrender meant to me. She gave me a big hug. I was like, okay, phew. And she said, okay, um, get five commitments. I didn't know what a commitment was. I said, okay. She said, go to five meetings a week. I said, okay. I'd only been to two. She said, um, and call me every morning at 6.30. I got up at 9.30. But I wasn't about to not admit that. So I called her every morning at 6.30. I can't believe I did this. But I called her every morning at 6.30, and she taught me how to behave. She said, you don't leave meetings early. You don't leave meetings late. Uh, you wear a dress when you speak. You know, and since then she said, I guess it's 7.30 in the morning. You don't need to do that. But now I'm, like, so suspicious. I don't know if it's what's working or not. So I'm like, I better wear a dress. I don't care what time it is. I mean, it's working, so I'll wear a dress. Um, and she taught me to pay my bills. Didn't know that. Didn't know that people don't like it. Taught me to pay my bills. She taught me to show up on time. She taught me to be nice to my husband. And um, she taught me how to be nice to my mom. And my mom died two years ago, and I died in full love and forgiveness. I died. I didn't die, but my mother died, and I was totally um, loving my mother. And that's because of this program. I didn't eat. Nothing happened. Um, I've recently um, lost some more weight, I believe. And the truth is I don't care. I am very clear that no matter how much weight I lose, it will have no impact on my life. It may impact my health, but it will have no impact on my life. My sponsor likes to say that when she was the thinnest, she was most miserable. I mean, I shouldn't like to say it. She does say it, but I know that it doesn't matter what size I am. This dress, okay, I put it on tonight. It says UK 14. Okay, so first of all, I go, UK, they're two sizes larger. But secondly, I think the, the number 14 would have set me back so far because I would try on gene after gene after gene after gene to find the one I fit, and if it finally fit, then I was okay to go. And the thing about this disease, you know, I've seen other people eat a lot, but what I do when I eat a lot is I start to despise and hate myself and think I am not a blessed child of God. And I went to a lot of extremely conservative religious schools as a child. And is absolutely nothing against my religion for a moment. I respect it tremendously. But basically the message is you're a sinner, um, you're, you're sinning, and uh, you better pray because otherwise you're going to go straight to hell. So my vision of God was not so hot. And what I've been taught in here is to have faith. And the truth is... When my life is painful, I have more faith because I have to. I can't be distracted. And my life is actually quite painful right now. It's been a very, very hard summer. Um, I got sober three and a half months ago because it became very clear that my integrity in this program um, was going to be compromised by me drinking, so I didn't want to do that, So, um, among other reasons. But So I got sober. Um, my cat died nine days ago. I've had a cat for 20 years. Um, and so there's a lot of grief right now coming up. And guess what? 
I can turn to my higher power, I can turn to my sponsor, and there are a lot of people in this room who understand. A lot of people. And I came into this room, I, I did not want friends. I thought I was plenty popular. I did not come into this room searching for friends or sponsees or anything else. And I know that there is a 999% chance that when I walk in here, I will feel better when I walk out. And and I'm actually concerned with how other people are doing. Like, I'm actually concerned with, are my sponsees okay? Did, is their dog okay? Did they have a good trip? You know, I can actually look at you and not be self-obsessed, you know? I mean, I've been pretty self-obsessed this summer, but I can look at people and, you know, wonder, how are they doing? How's their kid doing? You know, that was not available to me. I can call you and go, I'm so sorry. I screwed up. I thought I gave you a bill. It was PayPal. I, I totally screwed up. And that is by the grace of this program. Um, higher power for me, I see a lot in nature. Uh, I try to meditate. Um, I didn't meditate till about eight years after being in this program. I, I would meditate like one minute a day. And you know what? Here's what I have to say if you're a newcomer. Do whatever you can. Just keep coming back. I did a, I read 30 seconds of a meditation. I did a gratitude list. It was 10 things and a one minute meditation. That took two minutes. Now, you know, today I, I wrote on a step. Uh, I did a much longer meditation, but that's what's working for me. You know, don't feel like this is too much work. Just do what you can. Just keep coming back. Because the worst thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to get rid, I think, or it happened to me, is I'm going to get rid of the feeling that I don't deserve to be here walking the earth and I'm not lovable. Because you guys have loved me until I felt I was okay. And when I heard that at first, I thought, yuck, I do not want to be loved until I feel like I'm okay by people I don't know and clearly don't have jobs. You know, um, <laughs> thank you. So, but what's happened is, you know, people say to me, you know, we really care about you. How are you doing, Lucy? How are you doing? How do you feel? It's going to get better. And that's what they've done, you know, and I, I try to turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understand him, her, or it, uh, or as people say, God, is we don't, don't understand him. I try to do that. I try to look for the miracles in my life, like look for the unbelievable coincidences. Um, one of the things that happened for me in terms of miraculous is I went back to Paris after that was my, you know, kind of bottom. I went back to Paris the next year and I'm running, there's a meeting in the American church there and I'm like running down the sand really quickly and I say to the person in French, do you know where the American church is? And they turn to me and they say in English, are you looking for the OA meeting? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah. And they said, okay, I'll take you there. I'm like, of all the people <laughs> in Paris. So she takes me to the meeting and the speaker is from Los Angeles. And I looked up at the ceiling and I thought, okay, God, got it. Like, I got it. And stuff like that happens all the time to me. My mother died while I was at another 12-step meeting. She waited till I left the house. I was with a really close friend. And so I got to be so taken care of by my higher power. So I look at higher power coincidences. I look at higher power in my animals in that, that love that my animals give me. And the extraordinary lesson that I got from this cat just died that I thought this cat was super boring. And so I used to say the vet would be like, mm, he's not doing well. I'm like, don't worry, he's really boring. And, you know, that boring cat I miss every morning of my life. Every morning. And it's because it wasn't, I had a super flashy cat. 
who was like a huge personality, but this cat was like loving and devoted. And that's such a lesson to me because what we do here is we connect. And it's not about what necklace you're wearing or even if I really love your purse and want to buy it from you. It's not about that. You know, it's really about the, the degree of connection and love we experience for each other. And that's what's been so incredibly healing for me in here. And so I just want to say I'm so grateful that all of you are here because there is literally no way I would have gotten better without all of you. Like, no way. Because I sit and I listen to your stories, the stories of people with bulimia for 30 years who quit, the stories of people who got pregnant and, you know, had children in here without compulsively overeating. I sit and I listen to your stories, and it gives me hope. And on the days I have no hope, you guys give me hope. And so that's why I keep coming back. So thank you so much. The question is what I ask for sponsor direction around is answers everything, including toilet paper. I mean, I ask, I ask literally, if I can't figure out what to do, I ask my sponsor. And, okay, so you're listening to a really defiant person. All right. You say left, I go right. I am majorly defiant. Okay. And enjoy it, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> When my sponsor tells me you can't go to this market because it triggers you, I don't go to the market, even though that's the convenient market. I I, I literally do everything my sponsor says. But I ask for direction around my husband. uh, Literally everything, Giselle. I mean, how to behave with people. How, you know, like something just happened where I... I snapped and I kind of raised my voice to a client. I'm not proud of it. She said, hmm, next time you might want to pause. I mean, so now, you know, so you don't have an emotional hangover. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's the answer. And the weird thing is it always works out. I don't know why it always works out. I have no idea, but it just kind of does. Thank you. Well, mine was kind of chosen for, oh, the question is, how do you choose a pro, uh, sponsor in this program? Mine was kind of chosen for me. I just said yes and went with it. Um, so I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question, Larry. You might want to seek out a guy to answer that. But um, the, traditionally, it's, you look for somebody who has what you want. And, you know, the thing is, the thing about sponsorship is I've sponsored plenty of people who left and went to other sponsors. And that's totally fine. I mean, I'm not right for somebody every minute of their lives, you know. And so you can ask somebody to sponsor you, and what's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't work out, and you know. But I think it's just super important to get started and get started on those steps. And um, my particular abstinence is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and an optional snack. Right now, I'm taking it. I'm taking that snack, and don't you take it away from me. I'm telling you, <laughs> um, because I'm newly sober, I do I do have a little few more cravings than I usually do right now, but I'm also super, super careful right now not to overeat. And for some bizarre reason, it works for me praying. I have no idea how that works. I was eating a corned beef sandwich the other day, which I never eat. My sponsor said, you can never have pastrami again. I said, fine. So I went to corned beef. So I need to have a corned beef sandwich. And I was like, this is not good. I started praying, and I put it down. How did that happen? But anyway, long answer to your question is just try somebody. See if somebody has what you like that doesn't work out, you know, and ask a guy. Okay, so tell your friend. (laughs) Um, So the question is, do I have a problem picking up the 10,000-foot 
10,000 pound phone and book? The answer is no. Because what I do is I know the, I've got a list. The list is read one thing every day, make two phone calls, and do this. So I just do that. I do that at the bare minimum. And then if I'm inspired, then I do a little bit more. Um, so if it's one paragraph of the big book, I'll just read that. But I don't require that I do a huge amount. I, I just do the bare minimum. And then I'm like, wow, this story is so good. I think I'll read more. And then I read more. And I, I basically do what my, what my sponsor tells me to do. She said two phone calls a day. I'm like, okay, I'll make two phone calls. Um, she says, read the big book today. I said, okay, I'll read the big book. But I don't say I'm going to read the book for five hours. I read it for a couple minutes. So that's what I do. I think, I think what I try to m- remind myself is it's A to B, not A to Z. So, you know, if you're looking to lose 100 pounds, it's just A to B. If you're looking to gain 100, it's just A to B. And I really try to remind myself, you know, people say it's, you know, just for the day. A day is too long. I can do 10 minutes. 10 minutes. I can do that for 10 minutes, and that's it. After that, I'm making you no promises. But 10 minutes, I can do it. Thank you. Um, the question is, what is the process of not pinning your weight to your self-esteem? It's erosion. It's doing the same thing over and over and over and over again until something beautiful happens. And I think that that's like the Yosemite Valley. I always think of that like the glaciers come in and open up this beautiful valley. Or like in churches when you go over the, the, you know, as you go in the door, thousands of pilgrims have worn down the steps. It's just I did it over and over. And I didn't want to keep hurting myself by saying, oh, my God, you're so fat. Oh, my God, look at all those wrinkles. Oh, my God, your stomach. It felt so violent to me. And I think part of that is listening to all these other people. Like I remember somebody once asked me, how do you forgive your mother? And I literally, my mouth fell open because I was like 10,000 shares, 10,000 inventories, 10,000 meetings, you know, and it wasn't like, you know, God came and went, bing, I forgave my mom. No, I I just was like, I'm not mad anymore. And I think that's how the, I'm not mad at my body anymore. I'm grateful. And I think that's listening to you guys and reading the literature and doing the same thing over and over and over. And one of the big luminaries in the um, beverage program says the steps do slowly with the food, the alcohol, whatever else does quickly, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, look, it took me eight years to meditate, so, and some people do that right away.